is a great and fitting song for us this morning as we contemplate and as we consider Mary's worship to God. You may have noticed in the bulletin, the title of the message is The Worship of the Blessed Mary. I'm purposely being provocative. Um, no, you didn't come to a Roman Catholic church today. You came to Omaha Bible Church, a Protestant church. Uh, we're not here to worship Mary today, but we're looking at her worship, the worship of the one true God. I can tell you a funny story about this before we actually jump into things in Luke chapter 1. Uh, a number of years ago at Christmas time, I wanted to preach a sermon about the incarnation, the coming of, of Christ, becoming a, becoming a human being, the second person of the Trinity. And so we looked at one of these kinds of accounts with Mary worshiping, and I called the sermon The Worship of Mary, much like this one, trying to be provocative. A friend of mine liked the idea. He's a pastor in a different city. And so a few years later, he was going to do the same thing and thought, you know, I'm going to try to you know, push it here and the worship of Mary and do the same kind of deal just to be provocative. And well, something went wrong between he and his communication with the secretary, the secretary who had the responsibility of putting the title of the sermon on the kiosk out in front of the church. And so my friend pulls up, I think on Sunday morning, first time he sees it, pulls up into the church parking lot. The kiosk doesn't say the worship of Mary, it says, worship Mary. So, <laughs> anyway, I think he just wanted to die <laughs> and keep driving uh, because ultimately we're not called to worship Mary. We're called to worship the God who Mary worshiped because that same God is her Savior. So, all joking aside uh, and all provocativeness aside, we do want to look at this great example of worship, worshiping the one true God who is worthy of worship, and we see a great example of it in the life of Mary. And leading into our passage, you have Mary hearing from God through an angel that she would be the unique one who would give birth to the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the one the Jews had been waiting for. The one who would bring salvation, the one who would bring redemption. And so she's excited about that, no doubt. Not only that, she's on her way to go and visit her relative Elizabeth. It's a lengthy journey, so she has all of this time to contemplate, to consider, to meditate, to mull it around in her mind, to pray, to praise. And now, on this journey to go and see her cousin Elizabeth, she shows up. And when she sees her, Elizabeth, who's going to give, an, give birth to an extraordinary child as well, John, what she does is amazing. But we should expect it. What does she do? In verse 46, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. First thing out of her mouth, first thing she does, she sees Elizabeth going to give a unique birth and she has been considering what's going to happen to her and what she's been promised. And she says, she erupts in praise, my soul magnifies the Lord. I worship God because of this. And this morning what we're going to do is to look at the details of her worship and to see the very thing that catapults her into this kind of worship is her understanding of God and her understanding of the works of God. And that's what we'll do this morning. So if you're a note taker and you want to take notes, you can, you can write down that we'll look at seven realities about God, seven astounding realities about God that led to Mary's worship. Seven astounding realities about God that might even help us to understand how we would worship 
if we're to worship this same God. Number one, the first overwhelming reality is He is Savior. He is Savior. Look again at verse 46. After she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's making much of Him. She says in verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Number one on Mary's list responding to the promise of good news the savior jesus she says i'm doing this because my god is my savior he's my savior and i want to take just a moment to to remind you that we all understand savior we all understand salvation we all understand being saved and even though we're tempted to think that's just church talk Our culture definitely talks about salvation, not in the same sense, but it does all the time. If if you have a, a physical crisis, you're in an accident, you go to the Savior room, the physical Savior room. We call it the ER, the emergency room. And you go because you need to be rescued from this physical peril. You need to be delivered. That's salvation, deliverance. Or if, if there's someone outside and looking in your windows and, and trying to break into your house, you call the Savior number. You call 911. I need deliverance. I need police assistance. I need help. I need saving. And in our consumer culture, we have all kinds of saviors in front of us. We have saviors saving us from things we didn't even know we were in need of salvation from. And if you look at the internet and the advertising that's there, or on your television, or on the radio, or billboards, you realize you have all these needs you didn't even know you had. And the marketers are offering you all of these solutions, all these deliverances, all of these saviors. We definitely are a culture who understands salvation. But we're not talking about it on that level, are we? We're talking about Mary worshiping God in this amazing way, full power worship. Why? Because he, she says it, is her savior. Savior from what? Savior from being from Nazareth, because that's not a very good place. Well, it's not a very good place historically, but that's not what she's getting at ultimately. She's talking about being saved, delivered, freed from what? You all know, right? Yeah, you're saying it's sin. She needs deliverance from sin. We know that this is what she's getting at when we cross-reference to Matthew 1, verse 21. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their from their sin. We know that that's what's in view here. Mary is worshiping because she knows God, the God she's communicating with, is a Savior. He's a Savior from sin. He's a Savior from sin. I would suggest to you that to the degree you understand that you have a sin problem, you too will be excited about the deliverance that would come through the birth and life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. Where there's no worship, more than likely, you don't see yourself as a sinner. It's no wonder you don't think Jesus is that special, because you don't need a Savior. Mary needs a Savior, because Mary knows that she, too, is a sinner. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I want to point out to you again and again this morning of the correlation, the connection, where you see this is a great act of God, you give worship. 
Mary sees herself as a sinner and therefore Christ as a savior, she worships. How's your worship? If you profess to be a Christian, let's start there. Do you really think you need a savior? Oh, let's peel the layer back one more. Do you really think you're a sinner? What's a sinner? A sinner is one who violates the law of God, 1 John tells us. What's the law of God? Jesus tells us that the law of God summarized is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your faculties, all of your being. Love God. Give Him all of the glory. Give Him all of the attention. Treat Him like He is God. That's what it means to be a law keeper. And the Bible says everyone is a law breaker. A law breaker is a sinner. Mary sees herself as someone who has not loved God with her heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's good she sees herself that way because God says that's true of everyone. With one exception. Even my little boys know the exception. It's Jesus. That's why she's so thrilled. There's a deliverer. There's a savior. Let's move on to another one. Another overwhelming reality about God that moves Mary to worship is that he is mighty. He is mighty. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's describing herself. For behold, from now on, all generations will, will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, that's the word I'm trying to get you to key in on, has done great things for me. He's mighty. Now, in one sense, you could read that, and I really want you to look at 48 and 49, and you could say, well, she's blessed, and all generations will call her blessed, and actually, maybe she should get the attention here. She's the special one. Think with me about this. In this context, she is the special one to the point where she says all generations are going to say, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I'm to be admired is the idea. I'm to be envied. She got to give birth to the one who'd been promised way back in Genesis who would deliver his people from their sins. She's the one. Oh, Mary. Every young Jewish girl's dream. She's the one. But the emphasis really isn't there. Mary's not saying, my soul magnifies the Lord because I am important and significant. I'm blessed. Please notice. Please notice that's not the emphasis. Because she says in 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And that's what leads us to see the mightiness of God who's done great things for her gets the emphasis. Think about it for a second. The humble estate, some of your translations might say it a little bit differently, but, but humble meaning you lack. It's used in different ways in different contexts. But if you have a humble estate, are you wealthy? Your estate, what belongs to you, your possessions, When you talk about estate planning, if you have a humble estate, you don't have much. 
You're not wealthy. You're not sophisticated. You're not a mover and a shaker. And Mary says, the Lord has looked on me of humble estate. And then she's called a servant. She calls herself a servant. That's not of high estate and wealth and clout and education and power and influence. No, she's down here, she says. But all the nations of the, all the generations are going to call me blessed. Where does that come from? The mightiness of God. That's her emphasis. Because in 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Me, the humble estate one. Me, the servant. And so she worships. God is not saying, oh, Mary, you are so significant. You are so extraordinary. Wait a second. Mary's from Nazareth. Wrong side of the tracks. It's the wrong side of the tracks today even. It was then. Mary says, me from Nazareth? I'm going to be called blessed from generation to generation? Where does that come from? The Lord who is mighty. He has done this. Think about that in terms of what the New Testament teaches us about salvation. It teaches the same thing. It's not like God goes, well, let me see who all, the, who all the real mighty people are. Let me see where the movers and the shakers are. And I'm going to choose them. So they can be showing everyone how great they are. No, what does God do? He looks for the weak people from Nazareth. He looks for the insignificant people, the people of lowly estate. And he delivers them. He saves them to show how great we are. To show how great he is. He does this again and again. You can just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, or as another translation says, mighty, our word. Not many were of noble birth. It's the same. It's the same. So think about your own salvation if you're a Christian. Where did it come from? Because of your heritage? Because of your knowledge? And you're just so smart. And you're just smarter than other people. And so God said, hmm, wow. She's a real bright one. I'm going to reward her. So everyone can know from now on how significant she is. It's not the idea. I'm going to say... I'm going to put my power on display and take the weak, not the noble, and I'm going to show how great I am as God. There we go again. God's acting like God. Who does he think he is? God or something? (laughs) God acts like God. He has a God complex, which would be unfitting and wrong if I had the God complex. Mary doesn't have a God complex. She sees God as powerful, and we should too. Let's move on to a third, a third overwhelming reality about God that moves Mary to worship is He's holy. He's holy. Now in verse 49, for, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Holy is His name. Holy is not God's name. What are you thinking, Mary? Well, that, that, that's a way of saying he is utterly and absolutely holy. So much so is this who he is that we're going to say that's his name. That's how they would do it in that culture. God is so absolutely holy that we're going to say holiness is, is his name. 
You don't get more holy than that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this because, again, holy is one of those $15 church words. And we all have heard it, and none of us know what it means. <laughs> we start, and we're doing good when we say that means sinless. Good job, you get a C plus, if that's all you say. That's a passing grade, though. Holy, before it means sinless, means something else. Holy means separate. Let me use another word. Holy means different. Holy means, if we want to put it in a way that's going to rub us the wrong way just so we catch the idea, it's strange. It's totally different. Now, let's not say she's saying, God, you're strange, so I worship you. No. <laughs> she's saying, you're different. Think of what she's saying in context then. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Therefore, you're, you're holy to the point your name is holy. What's happening here? What's going on? This God, her God, the one true God, is totally different from the gods of the Romans. Totally different from the gods uh, of the nations. He's different because what does he do? Uh, reward those who, who, who you know, try harder? No. The gods of the nations, the gods of every other religion other than Christianity, are all based upon a work system. If you jump a little higher, this God says, I'll reward you. If you give, I'll rescue you. I'll do something for you. Every religious system on planet Earth is based upon what we do if Mary was from the right side of the tracks, if Mary was of the elite status, if Mary was really extraordinary. She wouldn't be saying what she's saying here. But she's saying, I'm a nobody. And God has shown His might by choosing me to give birth to Messiah, the promised Christ. Holy is His name. Holy is His name. He's totally different. Think about this when you sing that great old hymn. Holy, holy, holy is what? The Lord God, I love it, Almighty. Same kind of images used here in this praise. He's holy because He's almighty in salvation. He saves the people that you and I wouldn't give the time of day to. Because they know they have a need. I love what's going on here in her. Her God is different. If you're a Christian, your God is different. Your God is, can I do it for shock value? Your God is strange to the nations. Doesn't compute. Don't have a category for that. Because you believe in a God who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. That's strange. That's a God who's different. That's a God who is holy. And Mary knows it. And so that is what causes her to worship. I hope, I hope that right now you just had opportunity to gain a better understanding of who God is from Mary's example so that you worship differently. That you can say, perhaps like you've never said before, my soul magnifies the Lord if this is the first time you ever learned that holiness means strange. <laughs> it means different. The God we're talking about is not the God of pop culture, the God of pop religion. He's different from all the other gods. 
He's unique. He saves based upon his son's work, not based upon ours. Our, the gods of the nations, the gods of our friends even, that, that God helps those who what? Help themselves. If that was the God that Mary had in mind, she would never, ever, ever, ever have said, holy is his name. Because he would be the same as all the other gods. I had occasion this week, just for point of difference, to read from 2 Nephi, chapter 25, verse 23. Go ahead and turn to 2 Nephi. I hope you can't unless you are digital right now. 2 Nephi, 25, 23. It's from the Book of Mormon. Listen carefully. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. End of quotation. That's not a holy God. That's a God like all of the other gods, lowercase g, the gods of the nations. That's the God of idolatry. Because he saves based upon what we do. And Mary understands that she needs a savior because she's a sinner. It's not based upon who she is and where she's from and what she knows. She's from Nazareth. And yet God shows his might and his strength to save her. And her response is, this God is different. This God is holy. This God is my God and she worships. If you are at a place in your life where you understand that salvation is by God's grace alone through the finished work of Christ alone, that God saves you like that, you've got to know that you do not worship the God of the nations. You do not worship an idol made in your own image. You worship a holy God who's wholly different. Makes me want to worship. It's exciting. It's exciting. Number four, He's merciful. She worships God because he is merciful. Verse 50 says, And his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We'll get to the latter part later, but for now. And his mercy is for those who fear him. What does mercy mean? She says, I praise God, I exalt God, I magnify the Lord because of his great mercy. Mercy is where someone doesn't give you what you deserve. When someone withholds what you deserve, if what you deserve is negative, that's mercy. This is why we try to make a distinction, and rightfully so, between grace and mercy. Grace is where you receive something you'd never earned, free gift. Partnering with grace is mercy where something is withheld from you that you actually deserve, and it's something negative. When we're talking about God, it's Justice, it's judgment, it's condemnation. Mary is not standing here worshiping God saying, Oh God, thank you for looking at me because I'm extraordinary and I'm so good and I'm all of these things. Because then mercy wouldn't make sense. She's praising God because God didn't give her what she deserved. He gave her salvation. Instead of condemnation. That fuels worship. It fueled her worship. He withholds his judgment from her. She sees herself as a sinner. 
Notice it does say, for those who fear him. He doesn't really spell out what he means. And so we want to be good Bible students and say, well, well, what must he mean based upon the context? Those who, those who fear him. Well, what's so interesting is Mary is constantly seeing a distinction between who God is in his greatness and who she is in her weakness. Now we're on to something in understanding fearing God. This is who God is. This is who I am. We're not on the same field. He's above me. He's different. She sees God for who he is. She sees herself for who she is. And that leads her to saying, this is fear. Or in our context, she's going to go on to talk about those who are proud. And God is against the proud. And then I think we have another clue of what it means to fear God in this context. It's not to be proud and say, I deserve... I think God should be like this. And I am like this regardless of what God says. No, God shows mercy to those who acknowledge that God is God. And we're sinners. And there's a difference and a distinction between us. He's mighty, she says. He's holy, she says. He shows mercy, she says. And She's of humble estate, in need of mercy. She's a sinner. He's a merciful God. Think about that in your life. And I realize this is not about us. This is about the unique Mary who gives birth to the unique Jesus. But we're, we're learning at least about what, what worship looks like from her. I would suggest to you that to the degree that you understand something of the mercy of God, you'll be able to worship God truly. I deserve. You totally don't get it. Totally don't get it. That's not fair. That's one of those statements in our house that we outlaw. And whenever any of our younger kids go to school, it takes them like a day to pick it up at school. Well, it's not fair that somebody else got a cookie and you didn't. You didn't deserve a cookie to begin with, you know. I mean, you got to do the little lecture kind of thing. And they're like, what? When we're talking about Christianity, where we're talking about God, creator, creatures, fair? Fair is we've sinned. We, 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 we've hijacked God's plane, if you will. Punishable by death. We tried to knock God off the throne. God says, treat me like I'm God. We say, "Mm, don't think so. Which means we're treating ourselves like we call the shots. We're treating ourselves like God. There's cosmic insurrection, spiritual insurrection. That's what sin is. Fair? Fair is you're in the crosshairs, as Psalm 7 says. And if God pulls the trigger... The angels would worship him because he's a just God. He's a fair God. Because the wages of sin is death, according to God's law, and God gave you what his law says. You will not worship other than ultimately some version of yourself if you don't understand mercy. Mercy is you're in the crosshairs, and and, and you should get it between the eyes. And you say, that doesn't really settle with the lunch I'm about ready to enjoy, Pastor. 
sorry, um, biblical image, Psalm 7. And God doesn't pull the trigger, even though he should. That's mercy. And so now what do I do? If I really come to grips with that, I say, God, my, my soul magnifies the Lord. My God, my Savior. To the degree that your soul doesn't magnify the Lord, I think you think you deserve something. Something good from God? Well, paganism teaches you that, but Christianity doesn't teach you that. I realize that Christianity has become so paganized we don't get it. Learn from Mary here. She's not exalting herself. What a perversion, by the way. Here's this passage where she's acknowledging that she is the nothing kid from the wrong side of the track, so she worships God for being her savior because she's a sinner. And what do we do in our perverted paganization of Christianity? We exalt her and elevate her as if somehow she is the co-redeemer. But in a sense, we're, we're probably kind of guilty of that sort of thing. We act like pagans too because we think we deserve it. It's no wonder we read Mary that way. I'm not trying to be mean preacher guy. I'm trying to say, let's think about this in terms of biblical Christianity. She's received mercy from God, and so she worships because of that. And if you realize you've received mercy from God, you will worship in light of that. I didn't get what I deserve. I didn't get what's fair. I'm thankful that God maintains his justice, his fair laws, because he executes his son instead of me so that his law can be upheld. Well, let's move on now as we seek to magnify him. Number five, he is faithful. Verse 50 says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That's just a statement about faithfulness. From generation to generation, you can, you can do a little study on from generation to generation. It's talking about that which is lasting in Exodus 17, that which is forever, Psalm 79, Psalm 106, forever and ever, Isaiah 34, everlasting, Daniel chapter 4. The idea is if it's from generation to generation, it will never end. And that's what happens when a Christian understands they've received mercy from God because if it's mercy from God, it will never be compromised God isn't moody you know God isn't going to have a bad day and say I know I made promises regarding Messiah and Jesus and salvation to be merciful to you change my mind and Mary's confidence is there that she is secure not because she's so good she's secure because God's promises regarding his mercy Go from generation to generation, i.e., they're everlasting. They don't end. If you come to grips with that, to one degree or another, you say, my soul magnifies the Lord. It is so good that God is not like me. He is faithful. Think about Mary. You put yourself in Mary's shoes. She probably didn't wear shoes, whatever she's wearing, sandals. Um, here's this young Jew, Jewish woman she's been taught the scriptures they talk about the scriptures at the table they sing the psalms we're waiting for Messiah deliverer the Christ the one who will save his people from their sins such great promises 
She knows it in her head. And I'm speculating here, so let's make sure we know it's speculation. But thinking in her head, she knows these things to be true. But, you know, by now, there's been at least 400 years of quiet since Malachi. You know, it's kind of like, I don't want to say it, but in my heart, I'm kind of thinking, hello, you know, Roman oppression. They're telling us we have to worship Caesar. This is idolatry. Hello, is anybody up there? You know, never say it, but no doubt Mary is so excited. She's exhaling, breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, what I was taught to be true, I know to be true like I've not known before. Maybe it's one of those cases, Lord, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm in progress here. My soul magnifies the Lord because His mercy will be there for me everlastingly. And now I know that it's true like I didn't know it was true before because Messiah is going to be born. The fulfiller of the promises. He's faithful. Number six, a sixth overwhelming reality about God that moves Mary to worship is that He is opposed to the proud and He's for the weak. He's opposed to the proud and He is for the weak. I want you to notice something here. I won't draw a lot of attention to it, but we have had a shift now in what's being said here from Mary because she's speaking now in past tense. And we can talk about the sophisticated literary title for that, but we don't even need to. Just know she's now going to start talking about what Messiah has accomplished, past tense, even though he hasn't even been born yet. And this isn't the first time this happens in the Bible, and it's not the last time. Why? Why is it that sometimes in the Bible, when something hasn't happened yet, it's spoken as if it has happened? Well, because we're talking about the promises of God, the mighty one. And so now she can anticipate the Messiah coming, anticipate the Savior's coming, especially with her head filled with Old Testament promises, and she can make the conclusions and make the statements that these things Messiah will do have already been done even though they haven't been done. Some of these things, we're waiting for Messiah to return. We're still waiting. This isn't altogether different from what Paul does in Romans chapter 8, where he says we're glorified when we're not. But because of the finished work of Christ and the sure promises of God, it is as if we are. So it's cool what Mary does here. Cool is a technical theological word that you learn in seminary. It's astounding. It's intriguing. It's sure. He's opposed to the proud and he's for the weak. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm, using this, this human image to, to, to communicate a, a reality about God. He, he's shown strength. He has scattered the proud. So that's where he shows his strength here. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And now what I want to do in context here, the proud are those who don't fear God. They don't see their need. They think they've arrived. They think they've accomplished it. 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. And Luke's going to pick up on this. Luke is going to record these kinds of things later even as Jesus interacts and engages with people. And we're going to see Jesus interact and engage with the guy that we typically call the rich young ruler. He is mighty and powerful and he's religiously faithful and devoted. I've done everything. I've kept the law. You know, and we know that Jesus is thinking, liar. 
Because no one has kept the law other than the one he's talking to. But Luke is going to highlight the rich and the spiritually proud are the ones that Jesus came to expose and bring down. Not only will we see the rich young ruler, we'll see others. We'll, we'll see uh, the rich man in Lazarus who thinks somehow because of his money, because of his power, because of his education, because of his prestige, he is acceptable by God. And those who don't have all of his accomplishments religiously are not acceptable. And we're going to see that Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. It's those who fear God. Those who see themselves as Mary saw herself as of lowly spiritual estate. People who will agree with God that they are sinners in need of mercy. And here Mary is worshiping God because God is going to do this. He's going to smoke out the religious hucksters, the self-worshippers, the self-promoters. How about this? Even those who do it in the name of the right religion, like the rich young ruler. He opposes the proud and he exalts the weak. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see this all the time. We, we live this all the time. And then you learn about biblical Christianity and hopefully you're past it. We see this all the time. You talk to someone. You talk to them about the gospel and their need for God's mercy and for God's grace. And they say things like, as if they've never heard anything you've said. And they say, say, say I'm a good person. That's the proud. Who in essence call God a liar so they don't fear him. Because if God has said anything, he's never said, oh, you're a good person. Oh, I'm wrong. He did actually say it. He said it about his son, Jesus. And the reason that good person had to come here is because none of us are. So that Jesus would keep the law and fulfill the law and then die and give himself up as if he were a lawbreaker, though he wasn't, and to be raised from the dead. And so when you talk to people, have mercy, because you were there and I was there. (laughs) And you explain the gospel and they say, well, I'm a good person. Just know that at that state, at that point in time, I hope it changes and you do too, God is opposed to them. And God will humble them, hopefully for salvation and not when it's too late. Not too long ago, I officiated a funeral where I said, you know, I'm a Christian pastor. I'm going to talk about the gospel. This is what that means. It's good news that we can be forgiven because of the work of Jesus, his perfect life, death, resurrection. If you trust in that gospel, you will be reconciled to God. And and if you want me to officiate, I'd be happy to. And and, and I'll proclaim the gospel because I'm a Christian pastor. And uh, I'm not going to, to, to... be ashamed of that. And so just, just so you know, I'm going to talk about that so people there can have hope. And the response was, you know, yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll be good. That'll be fine. Because my dad was a good person. I didn't say, well, since you don't understand, I refuse to officiate the funeral. I thought, I guess I have another opportunity to try to get it through. And to preach the gospel. But you have to know. 
that is spiritual suicide. To hold on to, I'm a good person. Because God is opposed to people who say they're good when they're not. Because they're calling him a liar. Now please don't take this like a club and go beat people up with it. We're called to be merciful and compassionate. I'm so thankful that the Lord was gracious to me, a proud person who was blinded to my own sin and I would have said, I'm a good person. You should be glad too. But just know that things are not okay with the person who says, I'm a good person. And Mary understood this. And she worships God because He will do the role reversal. And then finally, number seven. She worships God with this amazing worship, fitting worship, I should say, because He is the God who keeps oaths. That might sound kind of strange to you. Let me make it sound stranger. He's the God who takes oaths or makes them. Let me make it sound stranger. He's the God who keeps covenants. He keeps covenants. Let's talk about that. But first, let's see what it says in verse 54. Mary says, He has helped His servant, Israel. Well, how did, how did He do that? Well, it's because he, He's sending the Savior King that He promised, the Messiah, the Christ. Why did He do this? Verse 54 says, in remembrance of His mercy. Now we have a little bit of work to do to understand this better. But it's about God keeping His oaths. God keeping His covenants, His official agreements that He's made with Israel. Here's, here's what's going on. Mary understands. She's worshiping God because she is putting the, the pieces together. God had made these great promises with Abraham to make him a great nation and through him to have all the peoples of the earth blessed in salvation. Mary knows this. She understands this. Mary understands it wasn't that God said, hmm, where's the greatest nation on earth? I'm on an expedition and I'm going to find the, the biggest nation and the baddest nation, the strongest, and those who really seem to have it together and I'm going to choose them so I can show everybody how great they are. Instead, God on His expedition, if you will, looks for the smallest, weakest, most unlikely, most backward of people and He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So He finds somebody who would have a barren wife who can never have kids. Abram. The most unlikely candidate. Abram the pagan. He's not a Christian. He's not a believer. He's an idolater. And he chooses him. You can just jot it down for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about this. Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. So when Mary, and here's what I wanted you to jot down, in, verse, in your margin, in verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy, so he helps Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, God's not going to help Israel because he remembers how great they are. 
God's going to help Israel specifically by sending Messiah, King, Jesus, Savior. Because of his mercy. He chose Abraham when he was the spiritual flunky of spiritual flunkies. And who couldn't even have kids. Great nation. Ha! And he chooses him to show how great he is. And he's even greater than you and I realize because God is going to use Abram to bless the entire world. Oh, now we get to Galatians and Paul connects more dots for us. This is tied to Jesus. It's tied to our salvation, even Gentiles. This business of God being a covenant-keeping God. Now, I would imagine when you showed up here today, even if you knew we were going to talk about uh, the, the Magnificat, Mary's magnification of God, you weren't thinking, oh, I can't wait. I mean, let's just assume the best. Some of you weren't thinking that anyway. But some of you are thinking, you know, I know we're in this passage. It's my favorite passage because it's such a great example of Mary understanding God and understanding salvation. I, I, this is awesome. Good job. Buy lunch. You're my favorite Anyway, <laughs> but very few of you, some of you, but less of you, were thinking, this is a great text. Because Mary so gets the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, by the grace of God, she is going to praise God. She's going to magnify the Lord because He and He alone is the great covenant-keeping God. Most of us weren't thinking like that. We're going covenant. I think my neighborhood has those. What? What I'm going to suggest to you is the more you understand the New Testament, the more you're going to see this as significant. And the more you understand the Old Testament on your Christian journey as you're learning, you're going to start making all kinds of connections and you're going to say, oh my goodness. Mary's parents did do a good job teaching her the Bible. She, she, she gets the bigger picture like I didn't understand before. And you're going to get the bigger picture as you grow and as you learn. And you're going to say, this is absolutely astounding. Jesus is the fulfillment of this that God had promised so long ago. And I'm going to praise God because God is a covenant-keeping God. We are really understanding salvation much better. and We're understanding Christ much better. And by the way, even if you haven't been doing this, and uh, you probably understand it a little bit better you're, 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 than you might have even realized, because when we move on and we talk about the new covenant, every time we take communion at Omaha Bible Church and we read the text in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're acknowledging that God is the great covenant-keeping God. Now, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll look at Genesis 12 and 15, and then we'll wrap up. Back in our text, and I might not even have read it. I apologize if I didn't. So back in Luke, we need Luke and Genesis. But in Genesis 12 and, 12 and 15, um, that's the passage you want to write in your margin of, of Luke. I almost said Galuk. Somebody give me a Jimmy John's. I need some lunch. I need, I'm running out of caloric power here or something. Uh, you can just pray. That would be better. But anyway... In Luke, in Luke one fifty five, it says, "As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." 
So we know Mary is, is, is talking Abrahamic covenant-ish. She's seeing Jesus as coming, as significant and fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham. The contract, that's what a covenant is. The contract that God made with, with Abraham. And, and this is fulfillment of that. She's reminded of that great reality. A covenant is an oath. You have a contract. You're going to swear to keep your end of the bargain. If you have two parties, this guy's going to say, okay, I, 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 here's what I'm going to do. And this person over here is going to say, this is what I'm going to do. And there's going to be stipulations and there's going to be, you know, footnotes and all sorts of things. And, and you're going to swear to keep your end of the bargain. We do those kinds of things even today. Well, Mary's worshiping God like never before because she's understanding how Jesus coming brings fulfillment to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And I underline this part at the end of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I underline that because that becomes significant in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, because it's repeated there regarding Christ and even regarding Gentiles. Maybe one other verse since you're close. Chapter 13, he's still talking about this Abrahamic covenant, this, this contract, this promise. In chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. An important word there is forever. That's an important word because that's what Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 55. To his offspring forever. God keeps his covenant promises. Now go to Genesis 15 and we'll see where this, where this, this contract, this agreement was, was formalized. I realize we're doing some digging here and we're looking at other passages and it's getting late and all that jazz and I've made the I committed the preacher's sin. I talked about food before lunch. Sorry. Um, but if we're really gonna understand why Mary's so excited, if we're really gonna understand big picture of the Bible, old and new testament, we gotta we gotta understand something about how God keeps his covenants. He keeps his contracts, he keeps his oaths. Genesis 15, verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, emblematic of God, because you don't see God. He doesn't reveal himself as God or Abram wouldn't be alive. Passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant or he cut a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, river Euphrates. Now, what's interesting about what's going on in Genesis 15 is the Lord passes through the pieces. Here's what happens. I say, this is what I'm going to do. This is my end of the bargain. Somebody else says, this is my end of the bargain. We're going to agree to it. And then we have to say, okay, what happens if somebody doesn't keep their end of the bargain? And what would be typical would be, we're going to cut these animals in half. That's what happens to the covenant breaker. 
If you don't keep your end of the bargain, it's, it's death. You'll be cut in half. So they cut the animals in half. You can read the whole account later. Cut the animals in half. And you know, God and Abraham should hold hands and walk through. God causes a sleep to fall on Abraham. And God walks through. Hugely significant. Hugely significant because now you have a contract regarding salvation and blessing that cannot be broken as sure as God is God. Theologians call it a unilateral covenant. Uni meaning one. Only one passed through and it's dependent upon him. And we say praise God because Abram is a sinner. We're grateful that God and God alone does this. And now it's all coming together in a fuller picture for Mary. And she's worshiping God, the one who's promised these great blessings to his people, even blessing all the nations. So it's not just Jews, it's also Gentiles. And he is going to keep his word and his promise to bring blessing and salvation. And he's going to do it. And he's going to do it how long? Forever. He's going to do it forever. He's going to do it. And we know that this can be the reality. And we learn more as we go. Because of Christ. Who is the one who brings fulfillment. And you say, that's a whole lot of theology for a Sunday morning. I just came here to worship and learn about worship. That's an awkward elephant in the room. Mary worships God the way she does. Dare I suggest to you that this is the kind of worship that we don't often see? She worships God the way she does because she does understand things like Abrahamic covenant. She understands that the, the, the God we're dealing with here is not just the God who, who only knows John 3.16. John 3.16 is in a whole world, in a whole covenantal structure of the Bible. And for it to really make sense is to understand something of the Abrahamic covenant. Not to mention the Davidic covenant. Not to mention the new covenant. Not to mention others. And to understand this is the God who does make oaths. This is the God who makes covenants. And this is the God who fulfills not only his end of the bargain... But if there's ever really going to be redemption and salvation, he's got to keep the whole deal. And he does. And he does. And that causes Mary to worship. I invite you to read your Bible and think in terms of the whole and big picture and understand. Let's go way back to Genesis and God making promises there. And they go throughout the whole thing. And even this day, we regularly say, this is the new covenant in my blood. And there would be no new covenant if it weren't for the Abrahamic covenant. And there would be no ultimate fulfillment if it weren't for him. If it weren't for Christ. And Mary understands this like she's never understood it before. And so she erupts with praise. And here's the deal, my friends. You now understand it better than she did. Because we have more revelation. Because we live on the other side of the cross. So let's be moved. Let's be moved to love Christ like we never have before. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the reality that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, that you 
you swear. You swear and you will keep your promises no matter what. And we know that you will because of what you've already completed and accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Light a fire under us. It would cause us to want to know so that we might worship you fittingly and appropriately. Lord, I pray for those who are overwhelmed by by even all of the information that it would just lead to hunger and motivation to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, learning about just how great he is. In Jesus' name, amen.